Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. Gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or where is this? Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing very from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast. The only podcast that's kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember we do this live every Wednesday right here on YouTube. Come and hang out with us and see all the cool stuff that our editor doesn't want you to see. This week, we are covering select horror films released April 16th through April 22nd. Thank you all so much for joining us. And I am JL. As you can see, I am here alone tonight. Yes, I am here alone. Uh, the boys are out there uh, busy doing stuff. I think that uh, Eugene and uh, Johnny are on set right now. And uh, they're all, you know, we got all kinds of things going on in the background. And uh, so I'm holding down the fort uh, tonight as we talk about the films that we have selected uh, for your entertainment. Oh, man. But it's been a wild week. Yes, very, very busy. Uh, all the stuff going on here at Week in Horror. And, of course, I cannot wait to unveil so much of it. We have so many things coming up. Um, look forward to those uh, updates in the Week in Horror Discord and, of course, all the members of our Patreon which I will bring up the banner right now. There's the banner of all the amazing people that make this show possible. Um, I cannot wait to share all of this cool stuff that we have coming up with all of you because all of you made this happen. You know, they made it possible, you know, for our kind of like little pipe dream to go and go out there and, and actually make like, you know, like horror movies. You all help make that come true. So we can't wait to share all the behind the scenes stuff, all the footage and videos and stuff that's going to come. It's going to be absolutely amazing. This is going to be a really cool fucking year it really really is so uh before we dive into our film selections tonight to make sure i've got the yep i've got the live chat up and everything good to go let's see who is in the, oh, oh sorry let's see who is in the live chat tonight we've got i see vera lucia Campos is here good to see you vera who was first up there says something wicked this way comes it absolutely does Travis Brown is here. Good to see you. Travis is good evening, Horror Freaks. I see we have to strip down the stream tonight. Uh, I like that. Very, very, very cute. Raven Darkstar is here. Good to see you. Raven says, hey, hi, hello, all. Good to see you, Raven. Thanks so much for being here tonight. And, uh, yep, Travis Brown says celebrated his birthday this past weekend. Well, happy belated birthday, dude. Congratulations. I uh, hope, hope you had a lot of fun. I hope it was a blast. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Casey Cooper is here. Good to see you, Casey. 
Thanks so much for hanging out. Sir Chasm was well. Good to see you, Sir Chasm. Says, good evening, fellow fiends. Thanks so much for being here, Sir Chasm. Brian Powell as well. Says, good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Elizabeth Sylvester, good to see you. Hello, hello. And I see Paracord Princess says, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Tesla Radio says, hello. Good to see you, Tesla. And I see as well, there's the man. Charlie Welch says, hey, Jables. Good to see you, Charlie Welch. The only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Fantastic having you here, Welchie. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Oh, let me see. Who else we got? Who else we got? I see. Oh, Tesla Radio asks, is it ghost time? Not go well, technically. You know, ghosts are alternative energy that we run on here. But uh, appreciate that. Uh, let me see here. Um, I think I got everybody. It's a we're, it's a little low tonight, but it's all good. But I'm so happy to see everybody. Angel Rivera, good to see you. Says, what up, what up, everybody? Thanks so much for being here, Angel. Oh, man. Travis Brown said it was a blast of fun, like Freddie killing teens in his sleep. Hell fucking yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So not a lot of stuff as far as like newsworthy going on. Um, do want to give just a couple of updates as far as the month goes. Remember all of our patrons if for those eligible tiers. We have the bloodbath debate coming up at the end of the month, which is going to be on the 23rd. But before that, on the 22nd, we have the after dark. So those eligible tiers will be able to come out and hang out with us and win some prizes if they beat us at horror movie trivia. And of course, at the bloodbath debate, come out and be a special guest judge. So be sure to watch your emails and your Patreon messages when we send those links out towards the end of the month. That'll be the 22nd and the 23rd. You can come out and hang out with us um, for those individuals who have are members of the eligible tiers. So we have those coming up. And of course, man, this month is flying by. It absolutely is. But definitely, if you'd like to support the channel, the bit, you know, the links are in the description. Of course, our, our uh, PayPal link is there, and of course, our Patreon as well. And you can support us for as little as a dollar a month, or you get all kinds of cool stuff uh, in the upper tiers, like hanging out with us, you know. And of course, check out the Discord as well, where we show movies and uh, do all kinds of interesting stuff. And of course, Rodent No Last Name, a big supporter of the channel, runs the Saturday Monster Vault. Or sorry, the Sunday Monster Vault every Sunday at 8 p.m. Central Time. He pops in there and we watch old classic horror movies. Really, really fun stuff. So all, all kinds of cool things going on over there. Let's see. Who else do we have? I thought I saw somebody new pop in. Ah, there he is. Denova28. Good to see you, Denova. Thanks so much for being here. All right. And it looks like Travis is taking a trip out to Houston next weekend. Well, be safe, sir. Be safe because we want to have you back safe and sound. The uh, the live chat wouldn't be the same without you. So I hope you have a lot of fun on that trip. All right, let me see here. Raven Darkster says, oh, yep. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Well, he, he's going to have to deal with that. That's other non, non-horror stuff. But um, since that's pretty much it, and there's no one here to kind of like fill the void and offer stuff other than me, I guess we've got nothing better to do than to jump into the movies that we're going to be talking to, talking tonight. <laughs> so first, uh, first up, what do we have? What do we have? What did I write on the script? We've got released April 17th, 1980, and we have the movie Macabre or Macabre. Macabre? Well, it's only me. I need the other boys here to put the bra in Macabre. So let's check out this trailer on the brand new, because I designed it on the brand new Horror TV. Hey, Fred Knotts. Good to see you, bud. Um, they're busy, you know, so I'm holding down the fort here. We can horror tonight. There we go. So, yeah, so Sir Kev says, sounds like a Pink Floyd intro piece. And NANA, good to see you. Says, very pr uh, prawn like, yes, Fred Knotts, good to see you, bud. Uh, thanks so much for being here. 
Yes, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the new size of the of the horror TV, the new horror TV that I that I uh, put together, so we can show the trailers, be a little bit more interesting in showing the trailers. But uh, yes, that was Macabre. So Macabre, um, written or sorry, directed by Liberto Bava and written by Poopy Avadi, uh, Liberto Bava and Antonio Avadi. So Poopy Avadi, you might recognize that name. He was the the kind of uh, the, he was the the writer of Gallo masterpieces, Zader and the House with Laughing Windows. Um, the film itself is oh sorry. I totally spaced. I needed to pull this up because I'm when it's all when it's only me. I always manage to screw something up. So the uh, film stars Bernice Stegers, Stanko Molnar, uh, Veronica Zinni, uh, Roberto Posse, and Elisa Kadigia Bo uh, Bove. And so the film centers around um, set against the backdrop of CD's '70s New Orleans. A wife and mother's illicit affair leads to destruction, madness, and murder as the affair carries on long after her lover has already died. So it's a super, super weird one. Um, the first thing you have to say on this, that's a Liberto Bava film. So being Liberto, uh, those are, are not familiar with Bava's work. Bava uh, directed things like Kill Baby Kill, um, Diabolic, uh, Inferno, Cannibal Holocaust, you know, the one of the big hitters, Demons, Demons 2. So like hardcore stuff, you know, he like, one of the premier names in extreme zombie horror. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Morena, good to see you, Morena. Thanks so much for being here. And yes, I love the little koala. You know, Irish, Irish sent me that all the way from Australia. So he's been uh, accompanying me on my little mic screen there. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. So the, the wild thing about this, obviously, the first thing to point out is that the trailer itself and the entire film is like this. The entire film is depicted with that kind of, with that kind of music and soundtrack. So it definitely comes off just at first glance, kind of like a 70s prawn movie. It, it, you get the, you get that kind of vibe. Not to mention there's a lot of like sex that's going on, a lot of moaning and a lot of, you know, gratuitous, you know, uh, from the perspective of the female. The, but that's where, it, I mean, that's why it's misleading in that respect. Because Bava, this one, I have to say he absolutely takes it to 11. So this uh, particular one, this movie came right on the heels of Cannibal Holocaust when Bava had, you know, almost come under litigation actually actual criminal charges for what you know people thought were you know actors being killed out in the jungle when he shot cannibal holocaust and this one followed up right there and at this time in about the 80s the late 70s 80s when he when he did like last cannibal world and inferno shock if i remember correctly yeah shock and you know coming up you know cannibal Hall and holocaust macabre and tenebrae um we see this kind of escalation in Italian horror. And that was going across. So it wasn't just uh, Lamberto that was doing that, but uh, uh, Ruggiero was doing it. Diodato was doing it. Um, freaking, you know, you name one. And people were trying, essentially, you know, Italian horror turned into this kind of one-upmanship. Like how extreme and how far are we willing to go? What are we, what are we willing to depict on this one? And in this particular film, for those who didn't watch it, um, and yeah, Sir Guy was correct. Bava is a master of foreshadowing. If anyone that saw this didn't know what was in the freezer, you were too high to be watching. Um, so the idea is that the story essentially is the wife and the mother of is having an affair with this with this dude, and they get into a car accident and he he ends up dying. And then one year later, she's divorced the husband, you know, and there's this this whole like subplot going on with her like sociopathic daughter who murdered her little brother. But then ultimately, in the end, it comes out that she's been carrying on the affair with 
her dead lover's severed head because his head was severed in the accident. And then at one point there's, you know, they weave in a little, Baba weaves in a little bit of like light cannibalism towards the end of the film. And then of course it turns out like, you know, the head is fucking alive, which is just insane because it attacks the, you know, you know, Robert, the blind guy who was managing the property. It attacks him at the end. It's be, it's beyond far out. If you can imagine this coming out in 1980, when people were freaking out about the extremity of Friday the 13th, this one was because Friday 13th would come out shortly after this movie came out in the States in 1980. And so this one was beyond insane. So Bava was, you know, Bava was in that, that group of filmmakers who automatically were trying to drive it as hard as they could literally to, to draw new numbers on the volume dial so they could crank it up before the spinal tap style. And that's essentially what, where this film goes. He is a an amazing. He has an amazing sense of foreshadowing, and he the way he presents these scenes and juxtaposes the extreme depravity in other scenes against the kind of languid, almost dreamlike surrealism. Um, it's not really grounded, but it's like I said, this DreamWorks surrealism of all of the lead up scenes. It does not prepare you for going into the you know, like, like what is going to be revealed. It's very hardcore. Not to mention when the head comes alive at the end. I mean, who saw that? Who I, I honestly didn't see that shit coming. I really didn't. But it's an excellent example of Bava's vision when it comes to doing what he did before and constantly trying to push the envelope in his own career and to challenge himself and challenge his uh, crews to accomplishing even more and more grotesqueries um, to you know to basically you know win you know beat out his competitors at the box office because it was a that's what that was what was beautiful about Italian cinema or Italian horror in the 60s 70s and 80s is that it was deeply competitive and directors they didn't engage in competition like American you know studios would where you could sometimes go into like espionage and sabotage and like stealing actors and stealing shit these guys would put something out and then everyone else would look at it and go, oh, we got to go so it was so much harder. And then while they were trying to beat that dude out, that dude was trying to come around and come up with something even more to beat out what he thought everyone else was going to come out with, which is why we had this explosive, right? This explosive um, influence of gore and sex and just, you know, like the taboo things that we don't like to talk about in society throughout the 70s and the 80s and, you know, going into the 90s in Italian horror. Which made it just a lovely time just to be you know, for to be a horror fan during uh, during that time period, and this goes to show this is the unique that was the unique landscape of Italian horror. They came at it differently. That after things took off when Hammer Horror kicked off and the and Christopher Lee's performance as Dracula really kind of encapsulated you know, like kind of like took the world by storm and it just entranced audiences in both of them, you know, around the world. Everybody dug on it. German cinema jumped on it, France, American especially, and of course Italian horror as well. Horror wasn't really popular in, wasn't super popular in, in uh, Italy post-fascism. We talked about this on a previous uh, podcast because people were still kind of like getting their bearings after Mussolini was overthrown. And so as fascism had left and people were suddenly free to start creating again, there's a little bit of a decompression time after that where people are kind of like feeling, like, well, what, what can we do? What can we do? A little bit of trepidation. And we talked about some of the films that came out, especially one that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which was the first horror film that came out after, you know, post-fascism, when people were clamoring, just like they needed something to, uh, to kind of like express themselves after this. And then of course, but it was Hammer Horror that really blew it up. Christopher Lee's performance as Dracula that really kicked things off. And then all of a sudden, 
we had this explosive race to see who could push the boundaries the most because the limitations that were put that were established by Britain, the limitations that were established in America did not apply to Italy. Italy was allowed to go full bore with everything they wanted. It's like, go farther, go harder, go, go messier, go nastier, go even more taboo, explore these themes. And my idea, a Raggedy Andy in the lower left corner, the, of what, where? Not in my, not in my office. <laughs> so, but that's the that's the wonderful thing about it, uh, about why Italian horror has such a is such a magnet. Why it's so amazing is because these were unrepressed and unrestrained directors that were in friendly competition with one another, and they often sometimes work together as well. And so we got the best of the best that they could possibly put out with you know without restraint. And I I like to think it's. Not my, I mean, it's not an absolute conclusion, but I like to think in my, I was just like, in my opinion, that the reason for this was because of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the years, that there is being a predominantly Catholic influenced country, that there is that sense of repression there. But the Catholic Church at the time in Italy wasn't really trying to wrest control of the entertainment industry or put limitations on the entertainment industry like you know, religious pundits were in America or in, or in England. So the church kind of stood out of these independent filmmakers ways. They just like, like let them do what they did because they commanded, they brought jobs into the country. They brought money into the country. They helped the GDP. They assisted it. More people in means probably more asses in the pew. So the church largely stayed out of their way. Largely. You know, there were some things that they, you know, cannibal Holocaust obviously got a lot of attention. Some of the things they depicted were like, you know, incense people, but they didn't, shut them down, which was very, very important. And so they kind of coexisted in this this tenuous, or I would say this kind of like, uh, yeah, tenuous is a good word, a uh, symbiotic relationship where the church kind of got what they wanted. The film, the filmmakers got to do the films that they wanted, you know, and this just goes to show that it can happen. We don't need that level of censorship and extremity, you know, extreme measures in order to, you know, over the film industry, which fortunately, like, you know, we see the end of the Hades Codes. It was thanks to Alfred Hitchcock, who really, fought against that and eventually we saw the end of the Hayes code gave way to the rating system and allowed people to self to self-govern self-police themselves as well as over in England as well when they uh, they dropped their um crazy restrictions and allowed you know, just basically went to the, the to the age limits so that was an important point but Italian horror has always been the one that pushed forward that really really pushed forward and in this particular one in macabre telling this gruesome story and I love the way Bava creates his environments, creates his atmosphere and how nothing that you're watching, you know, all of the moments of exposition, you know, they're so languid and they give way to these extreme uh, moments to these ex frenetic moments that don't last very long, which is, I think, in my opinion, is very similar to real life. It's that's why these films like, like films like this are so disconcerting is because real life, much, you know, many people will tell you it's very similar to just long periods of just kind of like normal things going on to the point that you can kind of autopilot through things to fast and frenetic moments of just like, you know, ah, oh, just like, you know, crazy shock. And then you just move on to the next period of, of uh, inaction, you know? And I think that Bava captured this perfectly in this, not only with the way that he shot things, the way he framed the narrative, um, like for my, like myself, I really didn't see the moment coming when not really moment coming when the daughter, when the daughter drowns the little brother, it kind of comes out of nowhere The the, the horror hits you, it blindsides you, which I think in my mind was Bava's point. 
is a reflection of what we deal with, that these things come out of nowhere. We don't really anticipate them. We know that they happen, but we refuse to acknowledge the fact that they do and that they come out of nowhere and we should be expecting them. But people don't want to. Living that way is difficult. And so I think that Bava was really shining a light on that kind of thing. It's like, look, it's a part it's, it's a part of the world and a part of life. You have to be able to deal with it. And throwing in people's faces like that, even to the extreme of a woman masturbating with a severed head, you know, which is not, which would not become, which is not be a, and a, it went on to become a trope in horror. Obviously, films like Reanimator and a number of others. Um, he took the concept from a story he read in America about a woman who kept a severed head in a freezer, which is where the whole inspiration came from for this movie. Um, but yeah, that's the intensity. I see the firefly just pulling jails. Like, oh, okay. So you're talking about these. So that's Cthulhu. My, they're talking about my Funko Pops on my desk. So that's Cthulhu, and that is Jane Cobb. That's Jane with wearing his funny hat. That's what that is. But in a sarcasm, you're correct. Yeah, in this case, it's literally the it's literally a living severed head. Like it's still alive, even though it's like been frozen for for like like a year, and uh, it's been frozen for a year and partially eaten because of the whole like cannibalism soup thing that occurs towards the end of the film, which is just insane. And then like you know Robert like fucking kills her in the kills her in the oven. It's fucking crazy. It descends into madness very, very quickly. It just goes to show that madness, depravity, and these kinds of things are all kind of like lurking under the surface. Very cynical way of looking at the world, but a very realistic way of looking at it in some respects too. It's that it's always there. And I love how Baba just rips the, you know, like rips the freaking blanket off, like in fucking Creep Show when he pulls the blanket off to reveal all the cockroaches that were like, that were hiding under his bed in his little sealed room. And suddenly he's trapped in there with the enemy. He rips the, uh, the blanket off. It's like, Oh, and that's kind of what it is. It's, you know, taken to 11, but it's absolutely amazing. And I, that's why I love Italian horror for Cause it really pushes in your face. It dares you to watch, which is why Bava and his contemporaries are so absolutely amazing. If you haven't seen this one and you think you might have the stomach for it, I think you will really, really enjoy it. Not to mention the music, the, the 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 music selection throughout will totally put you. It's not they're not off putting, but they will totally put you at at a disadvantage because you're. They don't. It's not the music you expect leading up to things. There are so many things that are like against the grain in this, but that is why Baba works is because he's gritty, he's real, he's pushing the envelope, he's taking risks, and he's saying, "I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to give you the you know, the thing. You're going to come with me on this terrifying journey," which is why it's so brilliant. Jeremy Duncan, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Says, oh, my fork and gourd, you are not talking about zombie strippers tonight. Yes, I fucking am. I absolutely am. It's going to be amazing. All right. But yeah, definitely. Macabre, one of the great 80s Italian horrors from Liberto Bava. I highly recommend anybody take a look at it, especially um, for those interested in writing, if those in interested in screenplay writing, for those interested in you know filmmaking themselves. This is an excellent way, how to an excellent uh, I would say almost a masterclass in how to tell basic narrative styles and how to make choices that kind of go, that kind of subvert expectations because Baba was a master at doing that. You know, brilliant, brilliant stuff. So I strongly recommend that people check this one out if you've got the stomach for, you know, a woman masturbating with a severed head that also happens to be alive and uh, just really, really grotesque, you know, just the grotesqueries. But this did... Um, <laughs> this did make me think because as far as like uh as far as like asking the audience right i was like what can i possibly ask about macabre like did you see that coming uh a lot of people are gonna say no but some people are gonna say yes because the you know the foreshadowing is is there 
but you know how extreme it's going to be is difficult is difficult to ascertain. But I do want to ask the audience. Hey, Donnie does that. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for being here. I do want to ask the audience. And I want to get your answers and as and in as much detail as possible. Being that this is one of the first more extreme in in film in horror films, this is one of the more extreme versions of utilizing a severed head in a film. It has been used before, but typically they've been used for shock value. Like, there's a head. It's a severed head. Ah, But utilizing a severed head in ways that it should not be utilized, typically, you know, things like sexual gratification, stuff like, like this, um, I was, it made me curious. What do you think was the best horror use of a severed head in film? And what movie was it, dude, just like the most shocking, the most... You know, graphic. There's like, what? Yeah, you know, what do you think was the best use of a severed head in film? Because you've got movies like, obviously, you got Macabre, you've got freaking uh, be a reanimator, you've got Seven. All of these are slightly different in a way. You've got uh, they all have different aspects, whether it's on gore or whether it's on suspense. Um, but the use of these things, or you've got Friday the Thirteenth, where literally everything is centered around Jason's mother's severed head. What do you think is the best use of a severed head in a horror film? Let me know in the comments below, of course, here in the live chat or, or at weekendhorror at gmail.com. And be sure to give details as to why you think that is. Love to hear your, uh, love to read your responses in the comments. Absolutely. Let me see. Jeremy Duncan says, best in my opinion is Friday 13th Part 2. Yes, excellent one. Where Amy utilizes it to, uh, to effect, utilizes it, you know, sees it and utilizes the sweater uh, to great effect, to subdue Jason. That's excellent, excellent uh, suggestion there, Jeremy. Fantastic. Jeremy Duncan says, can we can we really place the two vacancy movies as horror and not thriller drama? So the first one was horror. I would I, I'd say you could argue that it was a thriller with horror elements. I mean, people are getting snuff filmed, so I think that's pretty horror. And the second one was also, it was definitely horror. I would say definitely. Yes, her sweater, absolutely. Moraine says, Mask of Zorro, when the blonde bad guy offers young Zorro a drink from a jar with his brother's head. Oof, brutal. Not to mention, uh, Walking Dead. Walking Dead, the governor, all the heads that he was using is kind of like his TVs, which is fucking weird. Or, you know, when uh, when Alpha put all the, the big giant reveal of the nine friends, of the nine cast members who had their heads lopped off and put on uh, spikes, you know, out there to the border between the Whisperers area and the survivors. So hardcore stuff. Travis Brown says that dream scene where Freddie cut off Chris's mom's head because it kind of like justice for her. Yes, yes, it comes around and has her head cut off. It's like, oh, it, it, she's still yelling at her. I remember that. Yes. Oh, Casey Cooper says, The Omen. Oh, picture glass window. Whoop, lopped. <laughs> All kinds of crazy. Shit. There's so many. When you start thinking about it, there's so many. Definitely let me know down in the comments below what you think was the best because I'd love to hear what you, what you think was the best and why. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Let's go on to our second one. And somebody already called it, said, yes, we are definitely going to talk about, ooh, Tony Juice at the end of Whisper in the Darkness. Fucking A. So many good ones. Oh, Planetary. <laughs> All the balls. Snip, 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 snip. <laughs> but let's talk about our second one. Yes, released April 18th, 2008. We have Zombie Strippers. <laughs> he called it. He absolutely called it. Oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, yes, that's actually that's actually really good. So, Sir Captain says, how do they manage to make a trailer without showing any boobies? Because there's so many boobies in this. Yes, there are. But, yeah, let's run this one down. So, Zombie Strippers, written and directed by Jay Lee um, and starring, of course, 
Robert, oh, actually, I'm going to, yeah, the whole list. Robert Englund, Jenna Jameson. Yes, Jenna Jameson. Uh, Roxy St. Penny Drake, Jennifer Holland, Brad Milne, Tito Ortiz, Tito freaking Ortiz, and, of course, Kaji Tang. Um, the film, <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, yes. So, with too many wars and too few soldiers, a lab develops a virus that brings dead Marines back to life. But when a test subject escapes, he heads to, actually, it wasn't a test subject. It was uh a Marine gets bitten by a zombie during the test and he escapes. He heads to a strip club and infects dancer Jesse, who then becomes a zombie. And the club's owner, played by um, played by Robert Englund, discovers that undead Jesse pulls in more money and that he encourages the other girls to get infected, including the popular cat. Cat and her friends go along with the plan, but then they start eating the clients. And of course, as Eugene would like to say, shit gets absolutely real. And yes, Raven Darkstar said that, Greg, yes, Jenna Jameson was in this. And actually, was actually pretty fucking good i also see um uh who else popped in here i saw uh joshua lee popped in good to see you, joshua lee thanks so much for being here there he is and then i see cindy johnson as well says good evening good to see you uh cindy johnson uh, tony Jesus, which anthology had the stripper that stripped down to a skeleton was it one of the tales from the crypt so that occurred in this one kind of sort of well she, she didn't really strip she was ripped down to her skeleton um in this one but yeah this is you know fucking crazy but uh, yeah, the predominant thing about you had Ale- uh, Alexis Texas in a few horror movies. Oh, well, I'm sure I wasn't aware that she was. So that's pretty cool. But yes, so this particular film, um, obviously, the thing that saves this one is, is its lack of seriousness. The film is, obviously does not take itself serious at all, which was the point. Um, Everything about it is designed to be campy, gory, and zany perfection, which is, I think, which is what really surprised me was that the dialogue was that the acting in and of itself, even from individuals like Janet, like an like individuals like Jenna Jameson, and not to knock you, it was like you know, acting is not really the forte of what she's typically known for. It's like you know putting forth like these solid, believable performances or these line readings as it typically would do. But what really, really impressed me overall was not just, you know, for the lack of money that they had, the the effects they were able to conjure, which were pretty decent. A lot of the gunfire was kind of off, but that's for, that's absolutely forgivable because the sound was there. But shockingly, that the line delivered, that literally all of the dialogue is legit. The dialogue is legit. It feels natural. And everybody kind of delivers exactly what you would expect. There's no point in time where the dialogue comes off ridiculously stilted, where they're trying to force a particular thing or say a particular thing. It's all delivered with brevity and for the comedy itself, but delivered in a kind of you know serious a self seriousness that allows you to take these characters, um, you know, allows you to suspend your disbelief. I should say, for for everything that's going in, it's stupid funny is what it is, and it's not only the fact that the acting is not bad throughout the film; it's that there's so much subtext, so much. This is why the film works so well. From beginning to end, they automatically, you automatically kick the movie off. They kick, you know, like Jay Lee kicks the movie off with the idea that George W. Bush has uh, recently won his fourth term. And uh, in doing so, he has now abolished Congress. Like he's disbanded Congress, so it's only him. And, you know, he, the, you know America is currently involved in wars, like in, on virtually every continent on the planet. All of these freaking uh, things are going on. It's absolutely fucking. It, Joshua Lee, it's actually better than Sharknado. I was wonderfully surprised by this one. Now, obviously, not a. This is not going to be a, a you know an award winning horror film. Obviously, it doesn't. But that's the beauty of it. It doesn't try to do anything more than what it's positing. It's like literally zombies and strippers. 
So I will. So like I said, I was impressed with the acting, which was way more than I anticipated. I was impressed with the effects, with the vast majority of the effects, which are pretty damn decent. The underlying subtext of the entire film is what made this thing great because it's all of the pot shots that they take to the various things that kind of like uh, you know, aggravate or annoy us, whether it was the Bush presidency or the all the overseas wars or our reliance on foreign oil or depictions of women in film, depictions of women in sex work, uh, depictions of men in you know who cater to these things. Everything in here is, uh, and yes, Sir Kevin says even the social commentary was tele- telegraphed to absurdity. It's all right there. It's it's, it's just it's in your face which is what makes it even better. The commentary of like Russ, like one of the best moments was Robert England's uh, uh, keeper, the Robert England's uh, manager bust out all these weapons. Like, and he's like, I have guns. I have all these guns in my office and no fucking clue how to use any of them because it says the second amendment is about, we have the right to own them. It doesn't say anything about knowing what to do with them, which is fucking, which is just a level of comedy that you don't often get to see these days which is what I really, really dig this one. And of course, Joshua Lee says, is this the one where one of the girls shoots a pool ball from her, from her cooch? And yes, she does. First, she does ping pongs, ping pong balls. Then she does pool ball, like, you know, billiard balls, pool balls. And she's like, just like bubbles in uh, in Zach and Mary. So, which is absolutely just asinine because it's in the middle of a fight and then she does this and then the other girl just stands there and watches it happen instead of like attacking her, which is just beyond ridiculous. Not to mention all their super strength, the superpowers, and the whole like whirlwind thing on the stripper pole and shit is fucking hilarious. So, but a lot of excellent dialogue and some decent special effects, good campy performances that don't take themselves too seriously from anybody. And I like this one. And you know, there's, I think that given whatever your political leaning, which is what horror does great, you know, as, a, as a reflection of society. Whatever your political leaning, you're going to find a laugh in here somewhere. It pokes fun at so many different things and just lumps them all to one. It was almost like South Park, like a like like an extended South Park film where we're going to make jokes at everyone's expense and we're going to set these all at the you know against the backdrop of zombies turning into strippers and why for some inexplicable reason the zombie strippers, the undead rotting strippers, are hotter than the live strippers, which is fucking hilarious. And I will admit, I will, I, I mean, I wish the guys were here because they would give me so much shit, but I won't lie. The very first, when, when uh, Jenny gets turned, the very first zombie dance, I won't lie, was, was pretty fucking hot. That shit was, I, 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 I will admit it. I will freely admit that that was disturbingly, <laughs> disturbingly hot. I was kind of like, wow. So I can kind of see what they're going with there, but yes. Uh, when it comes down to it, um, it's a, it's a fun little romp, a popcorn film, as Johnny would say, it's definitely a popcorn film and the film works on the, you know, fires on all levels. And that's why it works so incredibly well is just because it's got everything going for it. It's got commentary going for it. It's got decent acting. It's got decent dialogue, decent special effects, and a lot of tongue in cheek reference moments, of course, references to other films as well as to how these things are absurd and this is why this is absurd. I absolutely, I enjoyed this one a way more than I think I had any right to. Um, Denova 20 says, I'm baffled as to how zombies could remember a stripper teen. So this is, and the God, Oh, Sir Cap says the goth girls dance is better. FC, everyone's got their, it's weird because everyone's got their taste. Like as to like which girl was hotter. Um, so it's weird because all of the zombies and, and they don't even, they just kind of like sweep it under the, sweep it under the rug. They never explain it. Why is it that when the zombies that were in the military base, that were in like the side, that were in the laboratory, that were being killed at the beginning of the film, 
why they were all like dumb Romero zombies like this. But then all of a sudden they like, they, you know, they, the soldier infects the strippers and then the strippers are suddenly sentient. They're like liches, you know, they, you know, maintain their reasoning. They've lost all their humanity. They crave human flesh, but they're able to talk and communicate ideas and develop like a hierarchical structure of who is the best stripper of like just basic competitiveness. Just like even undead, these fuckers are still slave to slaves to capitalism. Like who is the best? Who is the star? Who will get the most money? It's like, you're fucking dead, but doesn't matter because money and fame, you know, money and attention is what they're craving. So it po- even pokes fun at the industry that it's utilizing as a narrative uh, trope, which I think is just, is even better. So, and the fact that people, you know, are so like zombie zombies and then like sex and self. And that's the wonderful commentary there is that they're not, is that Lee is not wrong. Lee is not wrong in pointing out that horror films, that the that the you know, horror films, like if you put these two things together, is that like strip clubs, and then you look at people who go to the movies. Now, the 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 prawn industry is a different thing entirely, but just strip clubs in general, naked women on display. There is a commentary there that people, more people go to theaters to watch movies or watch movies. More people watch movies and watch things like horror. Then watch, then go to porn, then go to, I'm oh, sorry, then go to uh, strip clubs. That maybe it's just kind of like this, you always get the sense that it's kind of like this dying aspect of the industry where there are some big ones throughout, like Las Vegas, Reno, but these little kind of like small ones out in the middle of nowhere, like in this place, it's Sartre, Nebraska, which is a nod to Jean Paul Sartre, the existential crisis. And that, you know, which is, you know, little tidbits throughout the entire film like that. So Sartre, Nebraska, and it's kind of like they're the last one out. Uh, the, the, the last strip club out the door, it's kind of like, you know, they're holding on for dear life being, you know, being the last source of this kind of entertainment. And that's pretty much it. Um, and I like that he commented on that, that he's like, yeah, he's like, and how hard they're willing to fight to hold on to it. Jeremy Duncan says, because everyone wants to see an undead zombie stripper naked. Don't lie, uh, guys and some girls. No doubt. But I will say that the ending sequence when with the whole like the face, the face dance which she strips off her panties, which she pulls off her panties in front of uh, in front of Robert. And when the goth girl pulls off her panties in front of uh, Robert Englund, <laughs> her panties are just like gooey and dripping and stuff. It's like, <sharp inhale> and she throws them, they stick on the wall. <laughs> and then she just, ah, that shit was fucking hilarious. And of course, all of the zombies die except for him because he gets infected and gets hauled off for, for experiments, for like lab experimentation, screaming, kill me, kill me. But yeah. Uh, Sir Kevin says, they explained that adding in a zombie male made everything uh, go to... Sh- oh, adding in a zombie male made everything go to shit. I may have missed that. I apologize, sarcasm. Adding in a zombie male. But there were there were male zombies down in the lab. See, that's weird. But who cares? You know, when it comes down to it, I'll have to go back. And- I won't mind going back and watching it again. Jeremy Duggan says, Night of the Fucking Dead. It absolutely was Night of the Fucking Dead. And it, yes, DeNova, it was a gooey nightmare. Absolutely. We didn't get to see that aspect of it. We saw a lot of tops, a lot of titties in this one. Yeah, obviously it's a stripper movie, but uh, no, no undead coochies, which is was probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing. The closest we got, I remember from fucking from Planet Terror. You know when uh, when, when Quentin Tarantino drops his drawers and it's just like just like sloughing off in between his legs. Shit is insane. Uh, we uh, Tony Regime says we ignore fucking dead as a portrait of boards given the subject matter. This is true. This is true. Absolutely is. Paragore Prince says, I'm ready to move on. Absolutely. <laughs> Brian Powell says, well, I'm off food for another week. We love doing it here. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We that's what we do. We go to the extremes. But if you haven't seen Zombie Strippers, I highly recommend it. It is a good little popcorn movie with a bit of gross. Obviously, they're undead rotting strippers because they're fucking zombies and they're ripping people apart and eating them and you know building a giant zombie army, which culminates in a huge firefight down towards the end with jokes and slapstick all the way through. Fun little pokes, everything in there. And it's well shot. It's a well shot, well constructed film that I strongly recommend people check out. If you got the stomach for undead rotting zombie strippers, which is about which is what it is about what it is, yeah. And of course, Jenna Jen Jameson getting all of the flesh ripped off of her body, so she's nothing but like but like the, like a partial skeleton standing there, which is fucking great. Oh, uh, <laughs> Travis Brown says weak and horror makes people throw their cookies. Sometimes we sometimes do. Uh, Jeremy Doug says, "Wait, I got a better one. Night of the fucking unalived." <laughs> Denova says he needs a Pepto. <laughs> But yes, we can move on from this one. But I do want to ask, I do want to ask the audience, because this one starred a particular horror icon, Robert Englund, as the club owner, I do want to ask the audience, what is, in your opinion, the best non-nightmare Robert Englund film? The best non-nightmare on Elm Street Robert Englund film. He's done so much work. What do you think is the best? And I, uh, the, I and I can throw it out there. One of my absolute favorites was a film that he did. It wasn't that long ago called Night World, which is much different than a lot of the stuff he's ever done before. It's still a creepy guy. He plays a creepy guy, but not a creepy guy with bad intentions, which I really dug. So, but yeah, I, uh, Night World was a was a really really good one. A really very uh, creepy. Um, almost Lovecraftian horror film. Well, and stars uh, Robert Englund with Jason London. So I strongly recommend that one. That one's a lot of fun. You know, not his not his usual kooky, you know, craziness. Um, but one of one of my favorites in recent memory. Uh, let me see here. And I got to pull. Oh, we got a bunch of love in here. Let me see here. Um, let me pull that up. Fantastic. We sure got that. Let me see what we got here. Nova 20 says Hatchet One. Excellent. Best job he had. Uh, Jeremy Dunks says best job he had uh, was during V. I remember that. I remember him in V. Uh, Travis Brown says Meet the Deedles from Disney. Awesome. Oh, wait, V. Genova <laughs> uh, 20 says The Mangler. Fantastic. Genova uh, 20 says The Wish Wishmaster. Awesome. He was one of three because him, Kane, and Tony Roll in that. And they all got killed by the new guy in the block because that's how you get your horror. That's how you get your monster cred is you bring in the other actors and have your monster kill the other actors. Uh, and, and he says, I got nothing. He's got a lot. He's got tons of stuff out there. So, but yeah, he's got done a lot of amazing performances. You might, uh, some people might remember, uh, you recall he played the dad of the bad guy in the latest season of Stranger Things. So, which I thought he was quite, yes, Tony Regime, excellent. Which, you know, I thought he was quite good in that one. He is an excellent dramatic actor. He does have chops. And if you get the opportunity, I also recommend um, Buried, uh, was it Buried Alive? I, remember, I recommend that one as well. Um, and that one came out in, oh, sorry, Dead and Buried. Dead and Buried, which came out in 1981, one of his earliest films. Uh, strongly recommend that because that one is also a Lovecraftian film. Very, very Lovecraftian. So, All right. Devin, let us know what you think is the best non-nightmare Robert Englund performance down in the comments below or, of course, at weekendhorror at gmail.com. All right. Let's move on to our next one. As soon as I get this one correct. There we go. There we have it. All right. So 
The next film. Oh man, I'm I've already through two. See, without without the other guys, the show's going quick because we're already only I'm already already halfway through the film or halfway through the halfway through the films we're talking about tonight. Fucking crazy. But there's not much. I, I mean, we're gonna or I'm gonna dump on this particular one pretty bad. Let's see. Jeremy Duggan says Robert Anglin suggesting Kevin Bacon pick up Freddy Krueger mantle seems like I agree with that. It does seem like a good idea. I absolutely agree with that. I do. But let's jump on to our next one. I'm trying to fill out the time as best I can. I typically we schedule for two hours, but this may run a little bit shorter. But let's find out. Uh, the next film that we have talked about because Paracord Princess so desperately wants us to to get off this particular topic um, of like you know zombie strippers. Uh, the next one coming out came out April twentieth, four twenty two thousand four, and we have Dark Harvest. Let's check out this trailer that even the trailer for a film that even the Turd Polish nine thousand cannot save. So, yes, that was the trailer for Dark Harvest. Dark Harvest, written and directed by Paul Moore. Um, if you don't remember that name, uh, he directed things like The Feeding, Keepsake, Paper Wasps, and The Upcoming Requiem. Um, and starring a bunch of people that you probably don't know, but starring Don DiGiulio, Jeannie Cheek, Jennifer Lee, uh, B.W. York, Amy Cox, and Jessica Dunphy. Jessica Dunphy um, is a well-known, uh, for some reason took this movie, I don't know why, but is a well-known... Um, uh, oh, I lost the Wallace term. A well-known soap opera actress who was on As the World Turns. Uh, but yeah, this is a really, really weird. So the movie takes place in the summer of 2002 when Sean, uh, which is Don DiGiulio, uh, inherits a farmhouse from his father. And uh, he and his friends arrive, decide to stay on the farmhouse, which is located in West Virginia. I wish Aaron was here to uh, give some commentary on that one. And when they arrive, they are attacked by killer scarecrows because the land is cursed. Um, so, yeah. But unfortunately, shit doesn't get real. And for a number of reasons. Um, predominantly, I think the first thing, and I think um, I think I could point out, from that trailer, there is the obvious similarities to the Jeepers Creepers franchise, to like especially Jeepers Creepers one. Every twenty, you know, every twenty three or twenty third spring, every twenty three years, it gets to eat, and then this particular thing is like every season it gets to reap. The entire film has a lot of similarities with Jim, with Jeepers Creepers. The problem is, and, and I mean, utilizing this these this cursed land that these scarecrows, that these uh, haunted scarecrows, or these possessed scarecrows are coming back to wreak vengeance and kill everybody that's on the property elements of obviously a friday the 13th but of course a lot of inspiration from jeepers creepers um the problem is that this movie has no like like this like it's you know like it's uh terrifying well, like it's villains it uh has no brain the film uh, so there's two problems there's two big things here that i want to discuss i was hoping that uh that eugene would be around because his his kind of take on this would be interesting of course, I can get yours. Uh, I can get yours, which is why I want to bring it up. Um, the biggest issue here is that Dark Harvest is, by all accounts, it, it is a, a terrible film. It is not great in any capacity. Um, from a technical aspect, the camera work is extremely amateurish to shoddy. Um, it's and in some cases, I would even say lazy. There is very little done to try and amplify or kind of like try to aid in the suspension of disbelief of the audience. You're constantly alienated from what's going on by the camera work. The sound is not great. It's amateurish at best. And of course, the special effects are also uninspired, 
which is a damn shame because these are evil scarecrows killing people with farm implements. That should at least be interesting and allow for some interesting special effect shots, but it's few and far between. It's not as much as you would expect, and what you do get is just not really there. It's uninspired. It's just like, stick, ah, and then, then like, ah, I'm a guy in a scarecrow, you know, outfit. It could have been so much, I mean, on paper, I can see why this would work. Because what is presented is a group of individuals go and there is this, there's this curse they're aware of because the lead character was adopted. And so he's not aware of the family curse that is on the land. So when his father dies, he inherits the property. He doesn't know to stay off of it. And he goes out there with his friends. They all wind up you know, becoming prey to these things. There is interesting characterization that is set up throughout the entire film. The care, each of the care, you know, individuals in the party. But the problem is nobody gives a shit and they never explore any of this to a degree that makes them interesting at all. So if that was in the script, it was completely ignored. Otherwise, you know, but considering the same dude, you know, directed it or wrote it as directed it, that would be Paul Moore. I was really kind of perplexed by this because his previous films, The Feeding, um, Keepsake, um, and his other film, Paper Wasp, were all really well done. They're, they're, they're fairly well crafted. And they show that he does have good instincts about what he's doing. But unfortunately, it, it's, not on, it's not here, which is, why, you know, which is odd because it's like an odd man out of his entire filmography. Um, this one, yeah, uh, CPM, good to see you. This is uh, Dark Harvest, the Scarecrow key of Scarecrow, the murder Scarecrow film. So I, I I get the feeling that this was a lot better on paper, and that's why the actors were attracted to it, and then wound up in execution really falling on its face, either due to a lack of budget or a lack of planning or both, because you can see the possibilities, and that's what, that's what ags me the most, is when you see, as a filmmaker, when you're watching the film, and you see the potential, you see the possibility of where they could have gone. And then you in your mind, in your head canon, you begin to draw out plot points that would have been far more interesting than what you're seeing. That would have been, that, but possibly could have been more expensive than what you're currently seeing. So it could have been budget. It's hard to say, Tony Regime, if there was any studio interference because I couldn't find a lot on the film. So it wasn't heavily publicized. It was, it was, it was direct to DVD and didn't have a lot going for it. The people that were attached to it were pretty much no names. And so Sir Kemp says it suffered a lot of in-production rewrites because of weird circumstances like theft of props and noisy crickets. I imagine they were shooting outside. It's one of the hazards of shooting outside. But yeah, there's a lot of problems with this particular film. And you can see that the potential was there, which makes it even worse. Because then you realize, wow, they could have gone in this direction, but they didn't. And that's what makes it more, more aggravating than entertaining. Because you keep being drawn, you're, you keep getting drawn away, which is likely why Moore didn't really embrace this one and put it out there as hardcore as he would as he as he could have, because it just doesn't work out. It, just, it doesn't work out as a horror film. Maybe just because the production itself didn't work out very well. And that happens sometimes, you know. But I'm of the whereas I'm of the mind go until you get it right. Um, sometimes you just don't have the money to do it, and you got to kind of sit with what you got and deal with it. You know, sometimes. So, you know, this movie came out 2004, Joshua Lee. So it was uh, likely shot around 2003, 2000, early 2004. Noisy crickets would have been more interesting. That's a good point. At least it would have provided some ambiance that would have made sense. But ultimately, what's really super weird is that despite all the failings of the first film, 
one-dimensional characters, uninspired special effects, you know, piss, you know, I would say, I wouldn't say piss poor acting, uh, mediocre, mediocre acting, you know, and all of the apparent problems that they had on, you know, they had, you know, going around like this, like uninspired camera work, amateurish at best, amateurish lighting and sound where the foreground kind of like blends into the background way too many opportunities. There's no real depth of field to give you any kind of like, at, you know, to give you kind of environmental engagement. There's so many issues here. It shocks me that this is a fucking trilogy now. Two more films followed this. I shit you not. And that's what gets me is because the second film, it was followed by two, oh, sorry. So two unrelated sequels, which was Dark Harvest 2, The Maze, M-A-I-Z-E, and The Maze 2, Forever Yours. So someone else took the the concept and they ran with it and took it in a completely different direction. So... Being that they're unrelated, likely I see the opportunity there for, I see the opportunity there to kind of capitalize on what was, what the, you know, capitalize on what was lost in the first film. Because the first film was just not fantastic. Um, Sir Kev says there were production notes with the original rental DVD and I happened to be managing a movie gallery at the time of release. Oh, cool. Awesome. I don't know if Dwayne said that's so corny. Ah, I see what you did there. That's so corny. It is very corny. This is a very corny film. Jerry Duggan says the Scarecrow from Wizard of Oz would be a good concept to make a horror uh, to make a horror from. Scarecrows are good monsters. They're good. I can I, you know, there are plenty of solid Scarecrow horror films out there. This unfortunately is not one of them. I can see why the sequels would be unrelated to this plot and they went in another direction. They just took they didn't made, made Scarecrow Scarecrow horror movies, which which will work because Scarecrows are good monsters. Casey Cooper says amazing. <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there too. But yeah, that was what was, you know, problematic about this is that I didn't see a lot of, uh, a lot of, I kept getting reminded of what could have been instead of what was from even something as simple as the actors blocking their actors interaction with the villains, the choices being made dialogue in and of itself. It just wasn't there. And if it goes down to that, there were a lot of production problems that were like took place during filming then those can really stymie you up. And if you're on a deadline and you got to get the fucking movie done, I get it. I totally do. Unfortunately, you know, kind of, uh, well, I'll say this. Fortunately, Moore's filmography does recover. This is this is not an example of his best work. And I think could be avoided for that. But if you want to connect it, you know, with the other two films, Dark Harvest 2, The Maze, uh, if you want to, you know, watch the other two films, then yeah, you could watch there to maybe get a sense of what's going on. Um, I like thematic trilogies. I really do. Not ones that kind of like veer off. But uh, but yeah, Denova 20 says, I think Scarecrows would be best in a movie with jump scares. True. Not like a slasher. You can see that. What a husk of ears. <laughs> Jeremy Duncan says, and Travis Brown says, it's amazing that there are two sequels. <laughs> His ears were to the ground of corner. <laughs> oh, Joshua Lee says, there is a 2022 film with the same title, director as David Slade. So, yeah, I did hear about that. Absolutely. Two and a half, yes. Sir Kevin says it was filmed in two and a half weeks, start to finish, um, and it showed. It absolutely does show. Rushed, problematic, amateurish. You know, it, it essentially, it very well could have been a combination of what was left on the cutting room floor or just like the best things of what they shot. Like, we shot shit. What's the best of the shit? And then here we have it. Here's the shit. 
you know, and I know that Johnny would have ripped into this fucking movie. Eugene probably would have as well. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much just me tonight. So yeah, unfortunately, not great. You know, this is the importance of planning. You know, fortunately, he got through it. He recovered a bad, like a bad performance like this could typically derail someone's career. More may have friends in high places that enabled him to, you know, to continue on after this. Um, but you know, you have the hiccups. You have the hiccups in your career. He recovered nicely from it, and I will applaud him for that. And he's gone on to do some really, really good stuff afterwards. Um, unfortunately, just this particular one, this kind of like Jeepers Creepers rip, Jeepers Creepers without a brain kind of rip, um, you could likely avoid it. Or if you dig Scarecrow Horror, jump right in. But that's the question that I have for tonight regarding this particular, uh, I don't even, I can't even make a joke here. I can't even think of something. It's just, but do you, find scarecrows unnerving unsettling or scary so our scarecrows unnerving unsettling or scary for you let us know in the comments below or of course at weekendhorrorgmail.com or here in the live chat do scarecrows make effective monsters do you find them do they work for you or is this kind of like eh, it's a thing made of straw screw it i can tell you scary stories tell in the dark that scarecrow was a little bit disconcerting i will say that i absolutely will say that travis brown it says Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is the best Scarecrow film. Fantastic choice. Excellent choice. Excellent. Yes, definitely. Ivy Gentry's here. Good to see you. It says, oh, wow, only JL tonight. Yep, just me tonight. Just me holding down the fort. Um, Sarcasm says, fortunately, I am not a crow. So, no. Excellent point, Sarcasm. Uh, Fatty's here. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. And I see, oh, Josh Lee says, depends on the Scarecrow. Like I said, scary stories to tell in the dark. That Scarecrow was kind of freaky. That was kind of a freaky scarecrow. I will give it that way. Um, Travis Brown says, yeah, in the right way, like monsters on Goosebumps and Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Nice. Morena says, scarecrows are just decoration for the real terror lurking in the corn. The children. Nicely done. Nicely done. I like it. CPM says, I don't find scarecrows inherently scary, but with a good design and execution, they can be totally terrifying and very good movie monsters. Excellent. Yes, they can. Good stuff. Definitely let us know in the comments below. Do you find scarecrows unsettling, unnerving, maybe even scary? Let us know in the comments. Let us know and why. All right. Or at weekendhorrorgmail.com. Peter Noddle's here. Good to see you, Peter Noddle's. It's a good day, mate. He's going to be lurking in the back. Good to see you, bud. Always nice to have people lurking in the bushes. All right. So even though we are moving along at a brisk clip tonight, so this is probably going to be one of the shorter episodes. Um, let's jump on to our next film, the next one and the last one for tonight, uh, which I have some good, seriously good things to say about, is released uh, April 20th, 2007, and we have the film Vacancy. Let's take a look at this trailer. And you're right, Genova, there was a good, it was a good scarecrow in an episode of Supernatural. Absolutely was. All right, so that is Vacancy. So, uh, directed by Nimrod Antal, written by Mark L. Smith, starring Kate Beckinsale, Luke Wilson, Frank Whaley, and Ethan Embry. Um, the film follows a couple who are on the verge of divorce and coming back from a family party who wind up stranded at a backroads motel where they slowly realize that they've been cast as the latest unwitting stars in a snuff film operation. So, and I, Jeremy Duncan brings up an inter interesting point that this should be placed in the thriller genre. Same with Scream, in my opinion, not horror. Well, I would say Scream is definitely a horror film. It's a slasher film. This one, obviously, I think, uh, okay, so a movie like this invokes a number of other films that you think you, 
it's still a good film. Vacancy in itself is a solid is a solid movie. And yes, Luke Wilson, yes, Morena, Luke Wilson is Owen Wilson's brother. Um, the idea on this one is that it invokes another a number. You'll you'll think of another number of other films when you're watching this one. And I think eight millimeter comes up there because obviously the Nick Cage one about you know Nick Cage, Joaquin Phoenix, um, Catherine Keener, uh, Peter Stormare. That one about um, you know the snuff the snuff film and a rich guy who wants a snuff film made. This one essentially invokes kind of films like that, films like Breakdown, uh, What Lies Beneath, uh, Dress to Kill, uh, Disturbia. So there, is, there are some thriller tropes in it, though. Yes, you are correct. Um, one of the things that makes this movie solid um, is Nimrod Antal's, uh, you know, steadfast direct, you know, direction, and that his idea was that he took a lot of, this is the guy who directed Predators and uh, Metallica through the never. He has a good grasp of tension and especially tension without relief. So I like the way he does it. It's a very, he, he has a good grasp of Hitchcockian horror or Hitchcockian thriller tropes, which he enables, uh, which this, this particular movie, he's able to really flex all over the place, which I like. Good moments where you know something bad is going on, but you don't see it until you, until he wants you to see it. He's an expert at showing and uh, at showing and not telling. He doesn't want to give the game away. You want to unveil that these people are in this particular position. It's a lot worse as you progress through the film. So it feels more like you're with the two of them as they are progressing through the film. That each new discovery, we are discovering with them, with the bad guys already know, which helps to really bring the audience. And that's why that works so well, because we're never given more information than what the protagonists have which is excellent storytelling. And that makes sense given that the movie was written by Mark Smith, who is a who is legendary. You'll recognize his stuff. He wrote Seance. Um, he also wrote Vacancy too, but he wrote The Hole. He wrote the remake for Martyrs. Um, and uh, he wrote The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio. And of course he wrote uh, the J.J. Abrams produced Overlord. So Mark Smith has a, a strong command of how to tell a particular story, especially with only you know six actors in the entire thing which is these two and then the cop and then the three killers. So very impressively done with a minimal budget and one little place, kind of like one set to play on. You know, you have the road and then you have the gas station next to the, next to the, the hotel. The time is forgotten, which is the, the base of operations for these, for these sick individuals. Oh, okay. Sorry. And the truck driver who rolls up as part of their distribution pro uh, distribution model. So it's, a very intriguing film. I really, really like this one. It's a good modernization of Hitchcockian tropes, and a lot, which is why I love that because movies like this will allow people, will allow audiences, especially younger audiences, to go back and look at other ones, see the value in films that came before it. That movies like this took its inspiration from going all the way back to like Hitchcock Psycho and Rear Window and The Birds, and how these narrative things, these narrative tropes are so useful in storytelling and why they are so enduring, um, enduring throughout time. So I love that Antal, uh, you know, got to, you know, capitalize on this one. And this is the perfect aspect, you know, the perfect evidence of why, um, storytelling to this, like storytelling like this, like the art of showing and not telling, whereas everything is revealed slowly, but surely the pacing in that is all very, very difficult, very tricky to pull off, especially when you need to juxtapose those moments of discovery with, high octane action which are fast and frenetic like the car coming through the phone booth or the vehicle being slammed into the uh, when they she finally drives the car into the uh into the uh, the motel room or when her final engagement with frank fucking frank whaley who you know is wild normally plays like nebbish little guys and here he's 
fucking hardcore bad guy, which is amazing. Kind of like reminded me a bit of Kevin James, because uh, I and Kevin James in Becky. Because Kevin James, you don't expect to be a bad guy, but Kevin James is a neo-Nazi in Becky. Was pretty fucking hardcore. And so Frank Whaley just going like, you see the like the the, the extent of his craziness. He's always kind of animated. Well, now it's extreme. So I liked it, and I, I enjoyed people kind of playing. Kate Beckinsale is no stranger to doing you know scary thriller films or horror films, so she's solid in uh, her respect. And then of course Luke Wilson, not really the guy you'd kind of expect in these situations, but definitely amicable. And then Ethan Embry, who really has a, uh, I love the fact that Ethan Embry was in this in such a small role, and that he was one of the killers. But I love that he's been able to transition himself from a child actor from movies like Dutch and Evolver and then really kind of express, you know, like the way he's chosen the, the, the trajectory of his career has been amazing with little stops like vacancy along the way. But having those solid that solid talent here is what makes a movie like this so incredibly watchable. Oh, let me see here. Um, Sir Kasm said, final girl trope immobilized by fear for 85% of the film and suddenly grows a pair when the hero dies and she takes out all the baddies. She does kill. Like she just killed two of them in one go, and then and then takes out uh, you know and takes out uh, Mason's character, Frank Whaley's character there towards the end. It does, you know, it's like where you know, and that that was that's what that was one of the small failings of the movie is kind of the anticlimactic ending. But then again, how was a movie like this supposed to end? Because Breakdown had a very similar ending. Breakdown, the whole thing comes down this giant Titanic uh, you know confrontation between the dude in his truck. And Kurt Russell in his car between JT Walsh in his truck and Kurt Russell in his car. And then the whole thing goes in the truck goes over the bridge. And then, you know, JT Walsh falls down. He's in the ravine. He's like, ah, oh. he gets the wife out, saves her life. And then the truck comes up and smashes the guy and, you know, kills him. And everybody, all the bad guys are dead. And then it's just like, huh, credits. That's it. Movies like this can kind of drop off when you're so engaged to this degree, to this emotional degree. The sudden drop off can feel kind of precipitous. It could be like, oh, I've just suddenly, you know, it, suddenly it's over. And that kind of works that can work against it, but it really is the best and only way because otherwise trying to force the film to allow for the decompression can kind of can cause it to drag and shift the tone, shift the narrative tone, which sometimes doesn't work. You, you don't always need a denouement. You really don't. And I like that it kind of like, boom, it's over. Now, did they have to, like, the idea that Luke Wilson is like, stay here, hide, I'm going to go get help. And then, like, turns around, stab, ah, and then I'm down. That kind of was like, huh? That was odd. It seemed like it was done for a very specific reason, obviously, but I dug it. I liked it. I, I, I like this one a lot. I like going back and watching it. Vacancy 2, unfortunately, doesn't just kind of, like, rehashes the thing, but it's like, it's a pre technically a prequel. Um, but, and I think kind of just, fails to do anything new because we've already seen the end. So now it's the setup. So if the setup is gorier and worse, because technically it's, it's a, the second film. So it has to be bigger and more, more elaborate and more extreme. Well, if it was that big and elaborate and extreme at the beginning, why wasn't it like that at the end? So we don't, so the juxtaposition between the, the way it started, the way it ends didn't really match. Like we don't get like, like, like how did this devolve into this weak ass, you know, this weak ass operation they got going on from the from the uh, from the the ferocity of the fir- of the se- of the second film, which is odd. So that's why the second one really doesn't work, but doesn't matter because the writing of this one is solid. The camera work is excellent. The use of light and shadows you know, works extremely well, and of course, it's terrifying, much like the strangers. 
You know, it's it's technically home invasion. People like fucking with you, psychologically breaking you down, and then coming at you, you know, and then trying to kill you. The only thing, you know, the only thing that stuck out like a sore thumb in my mind was the fact that they were coming in and out of the bathroom via a trap door, via a, via a hidden trap door, and you have to come up because there's tunnels running under everything. So they would come up in the bath. That's how they were getting in and out of the apartment without them knowing about it. Or in and out of the hotel, the motel room without them knowing about it. But the problem is the trap door was hidden by a bath rug. And there's a scene later where Kate Beckinsale has to rip the rip the bath. Well, actually, no, it's Luke Wilson pushes the bath, the the bath mat or the bath rug aside and reveals that he's like, Oh, there's a trap door here. If they but they would already been coming in and out. How were they replacing the bath rug when they were leaving? So that they would be able to so that they wouldn't discover it earlier. Because they were in the bathroom before that. And never saw it. So the conveniently, you know, replacing itself bath rug was a little odd. I thought it was just one of those little things. But that's a very small mistake I can forgive them for just for narrative purposes. Is like, there it is. And, you know, and I, I, would, I, I, I would say I'm nitpicking if I were to hold that against them. Everything else works so well. And even the forced trope of couple with drama. It's like... We can't just have a loving couple in the situation. They themselves have to have drama that they themselves overcome by making it through a survival scenario. That always comes off as fairly uh, unrealistic to me because just because you made it through a made it through trauma together doesn't mean you're going to stay together. It's not like, "Ooh, we needed to live through a to live through a horrifying survival experience to find our to reappreciate each other." Life doesn't work that way. And I know it's the movies. It's not meant to be, but that always kind of puts me off a little bit because I'm like, eh, that's not really how that works. It sticks in my craw. It's kind of like, as a writer, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encompass that. You know, just because you've made it through this, those problems you had before are still there. They don't magically get resolved because you survived killers. You can forget them temporarily, but that's what's that's the problematic there, and likely why we get the precipitous ending. The kind of like, up, oh, it just ends, just drops off. We don't have to worry about that. So um, let me see here what we got in the chat. And uh, Anna, Anna said eight millimeter was the best. Eight millimeter was really, really good. Uh, one of the, an underrated cage performance and Joaquin Phoenix. Um, hey, you got to pay, pay, you got to pay before you pump. I love that one. This is, this is a line out of nowhere. Uh, Denova 20 says rest stop. All right. Uh, Tony Regime said there was an episode of Criminal Minds at a similar motel, right? Jeremy Duncan brings up Glorious, which is a new one with Ryan Quanton and J.K. Simmons, where he plays the, 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 Lovecraftian entity, the cosmic entity in the bathroom stall, speaking through a glory hole. It's just, which is quite hilarious. You cannot see my actual form, but uh, <clears throat> I did like that one. I did like you know, I, I especially the twist at the end. I didn't see that coming. I didn't. It was <clears throat> well hidden, you know, well obfuscated what was really going on in that sequence. Uh, Jeremy Duncan says best Left for Dead female movies are the I Spit on Your Graves franchise. Agreed. I Spit on Your Graves is excellent. Extra J, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Sir Kevin says, I would still rather watch Wrong Turn or Hitcher where road horror is concerned. The, this one just kind of left me dry. And that may be the more thriller-style elements. It's not as visceral as the Hitcher or the cannibalistic inbred, you know, the, the, the inbred cannibals in Wrong Turn. It doesn't go to those extreme lengths. And that's, but that is what attracted Kate Beckinsale and uh, Luke Wilson to the actual project because they wanted to do a movie like this, but they each of them wanted to do a movie like this. But the fact and the, what it brought them in was the lack of reliance upon gore and 
you know, just messy horror. They wanted those psychological tropes because the psychological, uh, when the tropes, when the tropes in the film um, rely on the mind rather than on like the visceral nature of violence that forces the actors to make really, really interesting choices and challenges them in their performances, which they have to convey their psychological journey so that we as the audience can relate to that. And that's what makes those so great. Um, and why you'll always get, if you go with a psychological thriller, you'll always land, you can always land really solid talent. Whereas splatter movie effect, typically you get B roster, some a little bit less. I know the first, the first wrong turn had, uh, Elijah Dushku in it, but look at wrong turn two, three, four, five, six reboot. So, oh uh, yeah, but yeah, but, um, this will be, I really, really enjoyed vacancy. It's always nice to go and get, you get the kind of like mental horror, the cerebral horror where, what would I do in the scenario where I get, I look at the internet. It's like, well, if I was here with my wife, what would we do? You know, and I, oh, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for horror films that put me in the shoes of the protagonist and say, like, what are the choices here? Where would we, yeah, what would we do? How could we possibly survive this? And I like it. And it's, it's the, it, I find those to be the, the most engaging. Not to mention, Untall, expertly shot, expertly, you know, uh, crafted. Everything about it from a technical, from a technical capacity is extremely strong, which makes for a very, uh, you know, a very evocative atmosphere, which really pulls you in. So, given that, I want to ask this question. Do motel rooms creep you out? And the idea, like, I think the difference between motel and hotel. So, hotels typically, you know, a bit better. You know, the upkeep's a little bit better. More guests there. More conveniently located. These, you know, motels like this. Those back, those back woods, uh, those backwoods motels. Those really, really cheap motels in the middle of nowhere. Do motel rooms creep you out? Do you find them inherently creepy? You know, kind of the points that John Cusack's character made in 1408. You have no idea how many people have been sick in that bed or died there. You know, so you never know. Yeah, the motel room. Do you find them creepy? Do you find them unsettling? Do you find them just off-putting? Let me know, of course, in the live chat or, of course, down in the comments below. Do motel rooms creep you out? Do they have that creepy vibe for you? Like no at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Oh wow. Oh wow. So Anna Annie says, yes, absolutely. Joshua Lee says, yes. Travis Brown says in a grimy motel room, then yes. Uh Jeremy Duncan says it really depends on where the hotel motel is. Backwoods, I think, is an important point. Denova says, not really. CPM says, oh my fucking God, yes. Can't stand shitty little motels. I would rather sleep in my car. Brian Powell says, yes. Casey Cooper says, ever since Psycho, absolutely, motel showers. Because you just feel exposed. You're in an alien environment. It's unnatural. You're kind of like, I've never showered in the shower before. I don't know what's going on. I'm not comfortable in my environment. So you're suddenly, you're, you're, you're hyper aware of, your, of what's going on. Any sound you don't expect, any sound that you hear that you wouldn't hear in your bathroom puts you on edge. So you're kind of like, ah, uh, and it just, you can't get into the shower, which is the problem. Liam Wakefield, good to see you, Liam. Thanks so much for being here. Says a scarecrow in a motel room. Ultra creepy. Yes, a scarecrow in a motel room would be ultra fucking creepy. It absolutely would be. That would be freaky. And and it's been a few, uh, few, yeah, crap, uh, crappy as fuck. I always sleep on top of the covers. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Janelle 20 says, I don't creep out easily. Travis Brown says, Oh, there is identity. We're just based on it. Yes, identity is also an excellent one. Thank you. An excellent uh thriller, a horror film. I would say horror as well, because fuckers were getting like decapitated and shit in that one. Absolutely. Uh, let me see. Oh, wow. Bunch of opinions on this one. Um, 
Josh releases or what's happened in the bathroom. Yeah, hotels no, never been a uh, hotels no, never been to a motel. You probably don't want to. Ivy Ginch says, yes, motels are creepy. Walking to your room outside is definitely creepy. I've had that experience for Ivy. Absolutely. Tony Regime says, I stayed in a few motels when I went to the U.S. in 2002, but there were two punk bands sharing the room, so the scariest thing was when we took our boots off. Oof. Thacker says, you guys are pussies. <laughs> Jeremy Duncan says, here's a way to creep you out in a hotel and motel in the backwoods country. No cell signal with extra extra creepy dolls in all the rooms. Oh, yeah. That's just, that's much. That's a little much. Absolutely. But definitely let us know if motel rooms creep you out. If you find them inherently creepy, is there kind of a creepy vibe to motel rooms? Let us know in the comments below or weekendhorror at gmail.com. All right. And also, I really want to know, everybody here in the live chat, everybody here, let me know, do y'all dig the new horror TV? Do you like the new horror TV? So I put it together. I made it a little bit larger for the live audience so you guys could see it. Do you think that's a, that's cool? I'd like your opinions on what it looks like. If you have any, if you have suggestions for how we might improve, definitely let us know there. But you got to let us know in those comments below. In the comments below, let us know what you think of all the little things that we do here. We're always looking for suggestions and improvements of things that you you think might look, might look better or might work better. If you dig the new horror TV, let us know uh, down in the comments below. And good to see you again, Vera Vera Lucia Campos. Appreciate that. Appreciate you hanging out. Marina says, was that, uh, what was that movie in the haunted hotel where it was like hell or something? Um, might need a little bit more detail on that one. Oh, oh, if you're talking about like hell house, LLC, there was hell house. That was a trilogy as well. Hell, hell, hell house, LLC two and three and three, I think LLC, uh, Abaddon. So, but uh, you may be thinking of, um, hell house, LLC. Robert Biter, good to see you. Says, when staying away, I set the TV to come on at 3.33 uh, a.m. whenever I come across one that can do that. Nice. Preparacore Princess, horror TV is still too small. Still too small. Maybe I should do it like this. How's that? Is that big enough? Paracord Princess, let me know. Is that large enough for the horror TV? Because I think I could always do it like that. So definitely let me know. Do you prefer this size or do you prefer this size? Oh, so the big one. Okay. So y'all prefer that size. Okay. I can see that. I can see that. Okay. A little bit better. Okay. Paracoprenia. So they say that actually they say that it's good. So I'll increase the size of the horror TV on the next episode. I'll make it a bit bigger. It doesn't get any bigger than that. <laughs> y'all are killing me. I swear. Even if I did full screen. Yeah, it doesn't get any larger. That's as large as it gets. I can't make my old TV any larger for you people. I can't do it. It can't get any bigger than that. Oh, so just me. <laughs> everybody wants it bigger. I know everybody just wants it bigger. Bigger and better. That's what it is. So I'll make it a little bit better. I'll set it up so that the overlay is a little bit, you know, pre you know presents a little bit bigger. But I'm glad that y'all enjoyed the new horror TV. I thought it, I, I thought it was kind of cool. So... Given that we are done with the four films that we were talking about tonight, and man, we are way ahead of schedule. We still have 30 minutes left in the show, but it doesn't look like we're going to fill them all out. Doesn't matter because I can't stop it. It is that time, and that is trivia time. And I'm the only one here to enjoy it. I really, really am. So, trivia time. The trivia question tonight for the first person who gets the correct answer in the live chat wins a mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store over at Teespring. The link for Teespring is down in the description if you'd like to check out some of the cool stuff that we have there, like the stickers and drinkware and some of the apparel that we have, the limited edition t-shirts that we've got, 
all kinds of cool stuff at the store if you'd like to follow along. Sorry about that, Brian Powell. Uh, you can blame Alex for that because he's the one that inspired it. But here we go. For the first person to get this correct answer, you get a mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store. Your trivia question tonight, flex those Google fingers, is what remake was the first horror film ever produced by Stage 6 Films? You remember Stage 6 for being one you produced one of the movies that we talked about tonight. What remake was the first horror film ever produced by Stage 6 Films? films first answer in the live chat correct answer gets the mystery item from the weekend horror store good to see hs for e thanks so much for hanging out bud good to see you looking for that right answer who's got the right answer what, what remake was the first horror film ever produced by stage six films tony regime sorry incorrect it is not frankenstein xj says evil dead no fact is a dracula no i know and sarcasm has got it sarcasm has it with April Fool's Day. Yes, make sure I got that. That is on the all messages. Yes, that is Sarcasm gets it with April Fool's Day. The remake of April Fool's Day was the first horror film that Stage 6 ever produced. That's how they got into uh, film production or get, got into doing horror films. So it was one of their earliest films and not their first film, but their first horror film. They kicked it off with a remake of April Fool's Day, which for all intents and purposes, it was not great. But Stage 6 has done a lot of magnificent work. A lot of good movies in their in their filmography. Not this one. Uh, April Fool's Day remake, not so much. But you got to start somewhere. So I'm going to write that down. Sir Chasm, congratulations. You have won a mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store. We will get that uh, printed and shipped out to you ASAP. Uh, Jeremy Duck says, wait, they remade April Fool's Day? When? So Stage 6 films... Stage six uh, redid back in 2008, March 25th, 2008, April Fool's Day was when uh, they redid that. Their, their, their very first movie was Missionary Man with Dolph Lundgren. Then they did three can play that game, Pistol Whipped, The Shepherd, Border Patrol, Conspiracy. And then they did their first horror film, which was April Fool's Day, which they, uh, the very same year in April of this year, they came up with Zombie Strippers. But April Fool's Day was their very first produced uh, uh, horror film. Yes, uh, remake of the original. What was the name of the remake? April Fool's Day. That was the name of the remake. So congrats. Um, oh, uh, Liam Wake, uh, so congrats, Sarcasm. Liam Wakefield says, don't know Stage 6 films. I used to get stuff from Creepy 6 films. So Stage 6 has also done stuff. You probably, you'll recognize it all, like a bunch of their movies. You've got um, A Man Called Otto. Uh, Uma with uh, Sandra Oh, which is really good. Good Korean horror film. Um, the Last Shift, The Grudge, the uh, the remake of The Grudge, which wasn't bad. Brightburn, Ladies in Black, uh, Insidious, uh, The La Insidious Last Key, Resident Evil Vendetta, which was a solid one. Um, Don't Breathe, which was uh, also them and, and Screen Gems together. Uh, the Calling, the so many good ones. Starsha, you know, I mean, there's a there's a bunch. They uh, the, uh, the Raid. You know, all kinds of like good movies that they did. They've done a lot of bad ones as well. Um, like, you know, there's some bad ones in there, like Lake Placid 3. But not everything is going to be a solid film. So congratulations again, Sarcasm, for winning that. All right. So I also have kicked this in. So that about it. And that is going to close out another episode of the Weekend Horror Podcast. 
Thank you so much for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash that like and subscribe button and be sure to hit that bell so you never miss a future episode. Join us next week when we look back at the savage serial killer horror, The Wicked One, the demonic horror comedy, My Demon Lover, the CW star-driven slasher killer movie, and the legendary vampire erotic horror, The Hunger. Be sure to check out Josh Wilson's store at badsamurai.store. And for more Weekend Horror, check out all the bloody links down in the description below. Follow us on the socials and check out our PayPal and our Patreon for behind-the-scenes stuff. As always, thank you all so much for being the greatest audience a horror podcast could possibly have. We love you so much. I am JL, and as always, we'll see you next week. Stay scared.